Hello everyone, this is Flo from the Great War Channel podcast. Uh, once again, it's September now, and my guest today is Jesse Alexander, and he's going to introduce himself today to you. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Florian. Thanks for having me. Uh, for your listeners' benefit, I am an independent historian and researcher, and I'm based in Vienna, in Austria, but I'm originally from Canada. Cool. So Vienna is a very nice city for a historian, I would presume, since it's full of history. It is indeed, like many other cities, but uh, it's close to the epicenter of the First World War, and that's uh, not the main reason I chose to move here, but it's certainly a significant side benefit for me. Cool. So the topic today we're going to talk about is cartoons, which, if you look a bit through old newspapers and also these weekly illustrated magazines and everything, were very, very popular basically across the board for all nations that took part in the war and everything. I've seen a lot of them. And that's a topic you're researching. So how? let's start with how, how did you end up researching this topic in particular? Well, as usual, um, research topics get chosen for pragmatic reasons as well as uh, purely ones of academic interest. I like images. And one of the things I, I found interesting about images is that they're slippery. They're hard to grasp in some ways. Their effect is a bit tricky sometimes to try to... Um, to try to define. And that sort of drew me to them. In addition to that, um, there's not a lot that's been published specifically on cartoons in the First World War that wasn't sort of written by journalists or cartoonists. So there's kind of a, there is a body of literature about it, but it's, it's kind of industry specific. Uh, in many cases. Cartoons usually get a mention, if they get a mention at all, as a subset, a detail of the bigger propaganda question in the war. So that's what sort of drew me uh, to them. All right. So can you, as a historian, give us a bit of context about the prevalence and the importance of cartoons more in a, in a general sense before we maybe drive, dive into some concrete examples? Sure. Well, I mean, if you think about the media context in the latter part of the 19th century and the, the first part of the 20th century before the war breaks out, it's a bit of a different world compared to previous human history, basically. And one of the reasons for that is you have mass and compulsory education in most uh, industrialized states so people can read. So you have the growth of mass newspapers um, with wide circulation. And this is an area where the powers that be, when the war breaks out, they can reach people. They can reach into the smallest villages where there will be a poster or a newspaper that reaches, maybe not on time, but nonetheless gets to them. And the history of the cartoon itself, I mean, there have been cartoons in the service of wartime objectives before. There are very famous ones in the U.S., for example, Paul Revere created a famous cartoon during the American Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars. There were all sorts of cartoons 
in Britain and France. The Franco-Prussian War was a big one, and so on. I think the difference is the degree to which the state and its propaganda organizations tried to harness um, the communication and the degree to which they could reach people in mass, right? There were, for example, in 1900, 2,000 cartoonists working in the United States. So drawing editorial cartoons each day and for that's the newspaper. Just, that's just the U.S.? That's just the U.S., yeah. Okay, so the... Um, I mean, nowadays, if you think about a cartoon, um, I don't know, you probably think of, like, uh, satire or political kind of humor, maybe something like the New Yorker, I think, is quite famous for its, uh, for its satirical cartoons and everything. But from what I understood, and what I've also seen here in some local museums, there was actually also a kind of objective drive to basically inform people, since it was still difficult to reproduce photography. So you could actually use these kind of drawings to... Well, like a painting, basically, but with an, you know, to inform the public about events, for example, in the war and everything. So, is this are these basically the, the comedic side? Is it a lesser developed aspect at the time, or is it kind of equal? Which, which one is more important? Um, well, both are significant, but the sort of let's say the news function of a handmade drawing, a sketch. Let's say I, I would call those sketches rather than cartoons. But um, it begins to lose importance because it's overtaken by photography. Because a photograph is perceived as being so much more real, so much truer to the fact. And when uh, the flood of photography began uh, before World War I, but especially um, in World War I, the, the first battle in the fall of 1914, there were relatively few photographs. And newspapers and news magazines would still use older style illustrations of the battle to, to serve as news, not as um, opinionated political commentary or satire or criticism uh, or positive propaganda, let's say war-related propaganda. And that, that begins to shift once everybody gets organized. There are lots of images, not necessarily always from the battlefield, of course, or usually staged, but nonetheless, there are lots of images. So the, the persuasive, that's the word I'm looking for, the persuasive cartoon uh, becomes essentially the, the primary function of editorial cartoons. And that is the aspect of it that I uh, chose to focus on. Okay, so could you tell us a little bit more about that aspect, a bit more in detail then? The let's say the persuasive effect of cartoon, right? How it gets that message across. It happens consciously through symbols that the viewer is going to be familiar with, but it can also happen unconsciously through the structure of the cartoon, where different things are placed in the cartoon, how they look, the qualities of those symbols that um, is more subtle and that appeals kind of to our, let's say, subconscious mind, right? Yeah, um, so you already mentioned uh, that, uh, for example, in the US, uh, the cartoonists were very much involved in the now basically 
full throttle propaganda machine. Um, was that the case in uh, in other countries as well? And was there is there maybe is there only these of these official cartoonists that are part of the propaganda machine, or is there maybe also other kind of cartoons that maybe operate a bit out outside of this officially censored machinery? Um, yes and no, of course. By and large, in most belligerent countries, and I'm going to accept from this Russia and the Ottoman Empire, because I know uh, a lot less about the cartoon and press situation in those countries, but in the others, the government censorship was, by the middle of the war anyway, uh, quite extensive. And it would not be easy to publish uh, independent cartoons that did not tow the government line. Artists certainly could create their own works, suggest them to the government uh, propaganda offices. There were calls for this, uh, for example, in the U.S., right? This, this Committee for Public Information put out encouraging calls. They wanted in the U.S. to keep a semblance of independence, a semblance of it being voluntary. But even there, the censorship was quite, uh, quite strict. There's one example that I, I just was reading about uh, last week, a cartoonist by the name of Robert Miner, his newspaper editor said, we need you to draw these cartoons that support these messages in favor of the U.S. war effort. And he refused. So he got fired. And he then, he then started to draw for a socialist uh, magazine called The Masses. But after the U.S. Uh, had been in the war a couple of months, The Masses was shut down by government order. So the real independent cartoonist uh, was quite a rare bird in the, uh, in the Western uh, belligerent countries. What could happen was that artists from neutral countries could create images that uh, may or may not be then reproduced in the press of belligerent countries. Now, usually the belligerent country would choose artists who shared their position And the most famous was a Dutch cartoonist called Raymakers, who became famous and wealthy and uh, whose cartoons were viewed by hundreds of millions of people and reproduced in um, hundreds of newspapers in the UK and then later in uh, North America as well. Oh, that's quite fascinating. Maybe we can uh, put a link to, uh, to his Wikipedia page or something in, in the podcast description so people can check him out. So uh, one... I mean, if you look at propaganda, um, also in terms of film and photography and that kind of thing, uh, posters, uh, during the war, there is quite an evolution uh, ongoing. Um, kind of, especially if you look at film, the information committees, in a broad sense, had uh, trouble keeping up with uh, the demand for images from the front line. Uh, and everything, and of course, f in terms of the messages, it got much more sophisticated as well throughout the war. Um, is there a tendency that you can see in the cartoons as well that it got more nuanced, or you know, their the messages were adapted according to how the war went, uh, etc.? Yes, I, I think so. I mean, 
There's a certain commonality that um, that persists because of the nature of the trade. So the cartoon is supposed to be critical, satirical, have humor, etc., etc. So you, you you do see some continuity. You see some continuity of symbols, right? The enemies depicted in certain negative ways and so on. But where I notice interesting changes is as the fortunes of the war change, the messaging changes, right? So I, I think cartoons are not immune to that change as well. Um, as Austria-Hungary becomes a target of the Allies based on its perceived weakness and its perceived dependence on Germany, um, you see that this topic becomes targeted more, right? So you see more cartoons depicting Austria-Hungary as having a lot of trouble controlling or convincing its different ethnic groups to believe in the war effort or to support the state and the Habsburg monarchy. And this fits to this shift towards from the, the Allied policy, basically, towards uh, separating Austria from Germany as Austria began to suffer more and weaken from its exertions in the war and began to put out peace feelers. This, of course, is a sign that uh, you might be able to drive a wedge between the two powers. So that is one example of, yes, things do, things do change uh, to some extent. And on the central power side, maybe you can specifically tell us about the Austrian side. Um, I mean, what the Allies portrayed is true. I mean, this time, 100 years ago, Vienna was basically uh, in nonstop strikes and hunger riots and everything. And the situation had been deteriorating since 1916, at least, if not even earlier. Um, and there was tensions between the minorities in the Austrian part, but also in the Hungarian part. So how did... Um, Maybe the, the internal propaganda, um, did they usula utilize cartoons and that sort of thing for that as well? Yes, they did. Um, what I find, I mean, the thing that, that sticks out to me about what I've seen of the internal Austro-Hungarian uh, visual propaganda is how traditional it was at the start of the war. There were a lot of images of... Um, knights and all these sort of traditional noble symbols there was quite a bit more text and this goes through a fairly radical change and the image i have in mind is uh, is a famous poster for the war bonds the kriegsanleihe by the end of the war you have a a very realistically depicted soldier in a dirty dark battlefield situation he's thin And he's looking directly at the viewer saying, basically, can you help me? What are you doing to help? And so it, that kind of change indicates that the Austrian authorities knew they could not hide the reality of the suffering and the difficulty anymore because every person in the empire was feeling it in some way, whether it was hunger or losing a loved one uh, to the conflict and that they had to seize on that fact to get the message across to to achieve support from the population so 
rather than a knight in shining armor who's noble and you, you should uh, support uh, spiritually, you have a real suffering soldier who you need to support almost physically. And, uh, and so that's kind of one example of how they tried to navigate that and achieve the goal, which, of course, in Austria's case, they could not. That's quite interesting. I, can, I know a similar, a similar tonal shift in German propaganda posters as well, especially for the war bonds, uh, Kriegsanleihen. The later posters also have like pretty realistic, there are soldiers on it with very realistic like uh, gear and everything and some of them even look sad uh, and everything. Submarine warfare is often depicted and yeah, so in Germany in the beginning you had a lot of like uh, Germania, uh, the, the basically almost Valkyrian image, like a shield maiden with a, with a German shield in it and everything. It's quite interesting. Our, our listeners want to uh, dive into the topic a bit more. Are there any notable um, examples or artists, apart from the Dutch artists you mentioned, that uh, are uh, interesting to, to look at and where it's maybe easy to um, find images uh, online, maybe in the Wikipedia comments or in uh, online archives? Anything that you would recommend that is interesting in the topic? Well, there's quite a a lot out there, some of it's not so uh, easy to find. What I'd rather do, if you can edit this, um, what I what I might rather do is I'll grab a couple links from my from my notes on my laptop, and maybe you can. Uh, I don't know. You can put them in the description of the video, or you can put them in little link boxes. Um, I mean, Raymakers for sure. Your listeners, if They Google him. His name is a bit tricky to spell, but uh, because it's Dutch. But these are the most striking, uh, the most striking images, uh, I guess I could say. Um, the other thing one can do is, if if anybody really wants to get into the original sources, there are some online archives, like um, like the Internet Archive or the Hathi trust and you can look for digitized copies of cartoon magazines and those weekly illustrateds uh, that are that are preserved there so things like harper's weekly or life or the cartoon magazine which was a, a magazine for cartoonists in the industry that's one that i used quite a bit in my own uh, in my own research as well um, but I think your channel as well did uh, a couple of videos on propaganda. So, that I mean, uh, if you, if our listeners out there want to have a general introduction into the topic, we made an episode about the development of propaganda itself, and one about specifically film and propaganda, which is criminal. Both of these episodes are criminally underwatched for some reason. I always thought it's a fascinating topic. Um, but yeah, we will also put some more, some links, um, like uh, Jesse will send me some links and then we will put them in the podcast description if you are interested to dive into it. Of course, you know, it's a bit tricky on a podcast to uh, describe vi visual things and, uh, and images and it's much easier to um, look at these things because as you said in the beginning, in terms of, you know, literacy, everybody can easily grasp a picture quite quickly actually compared to maybe a wall of text or something like that 
All right, Jesse, let's dive into it a bit more. Um, you already mentioned uh, with the example of, for example, how Austria-Hungary was portrayed in these cartoons, that there were certain symbols um, that could be found across all these cartoons, even if there were different ones or were different artists. Are there any other notable kind of symbols that you found uh, fascinating that uh, our listeners can uh, look out for when they have a look at the cartoons? Yes. I mean, if you're a cartoon artist, you need to speak to people in a language that is going to resonate. So you're going to use symbols, you're going to use stereotypes that are already current, and then you're going to beef them up um, to strengthen the message in wartime, right? So one of the more interesting examples, I think, uh, and perhaps this is because it's a Russian example, and I, I know a bit less about the Russian propaganda history. But now Russia is a bit of an exception from the, the literacy progress that I mentioned earlier in the 19th century. Much of the population there is literate. But what the Russian rural population knows is religious icons and fairy tales. Fairy tales are very important in Russian folk culture. And so I've seen some, some very interesting cartoons and, and posters that play on this previously existing knowledge of, of the Russian population. So you have Kaiser Wilhelm and other scenes depicting uh, the evil, bad Germans in the style of an old school Russian fairy tale, the style of drawing from several hundred years ago. And you have um, similar style as orthodox uh, icons being used sometimes as well. Um, some of the most arresting imagery was targeting, of course, the Germans, right? They were perceived among the Western powers as being the country that caused the war, the country that wanted the war. So you'll have Germans being depicted as rapists, as beasts, monsters, thieves, and very often as pigs, uh, because, of course, traditionally, pigs are not a very clean, nice animal. And, um, and these are things that people would be familiar with. Religious imagery is very important as well. You portray your own side as saints or suffering like Jesus or these types of angels helping your side, the famous angels of Mons in the British legend, and you depict the other side as being the Antichrist or Satan. Kaiser Wilhelm was very often portrayed as, as Satan or as, a, as some sort of devil. Um, there was a, a myth that appears in different cartoons and posters of a Canadian sergeant early in the war who was crucified by German soldiers, although it's 99.9% .9 sure that that never happened. There's no evidence for it whatsoever. But religious imagery, because most of the population was still religious at that time. So religious symbolism was a, was a very important type of symbol to use. And um, is that also something that uh, changed throughout the war? I mean, maybe if we stick with uh, the example of Russia, but also, I mean, it's not all, only a Russian thing, but I mean, after the Russian Revolution and also in Berlin and Vienna and everything, you had large movements of 
socialists, uh, worker movements, labor movements and everything. I mean, they, they must have used something different than religious imagery probably. And maybe the, the targets of their propaganda uh, maybe also changed. Uh, yes and no. That, that's a great question, actually. Um, I think that sort of change was more pronounced in the three states that you mentioned because they collapsed and that allowed uh, socialist movements to, to have a lot more say, a lot more influence. And of course, in Russia to, to take over. They still needed to use, in spite of the fact that uh, socialist propaganda has, a, has its own sort of artistic, you know, avant-garde, uh, modernist sort of style with the new Soviet man being a blocky, you know, worker. And so on, they nonetheless have to still appeal to the same population. All those Russian peasants don't change their cultural code overnight. So... I've seen some really interesting socialist propaganda from the time of the revolution and the, and the Russian Civil War that still imitates a little bit the, not the content, but some of the form of the religious imagery. So you might have Lenin depicted in a way where in profile with a light circle behind his head, so the, almost like a halo style, similar to uh, orthodox icons, right? It's not directly appealing to religious sentiments because they're atheists and they want the population to be atheists as well. But they understood that we still need to piggyback on those cultural symbols because they didn't go away overnight. Um, yeah, I, I was quite interested to see. I was just in Russia this summer. Uh, several of the archives and uh, museums had uh, had some very interesting almost contradictory to our modern instinctive reaction yeah that's uh, that's actually quite interesting um and i would also um, coming back to or staying with this topic i would also assume that there was probably um propaganda in the other allied countries and also in germany and austria hungary that was aimed not only at the external enemy, to, so to speak, but also at the internal enemy, because, uh, I mean, the labor movements, um, strikes, um, the fear of a Soviet revolution, that kind of thing, was a very real fear by 1917, 1918. I mean, in the US in 1919, we're going into the first Red Scare, um, that sort of thing. So there was probably also cartoons aimed at, you know, what I just named the internal enemy. Have you seen anything, any examples like that? Oh yeah, there, there were many. I mean, one of the primary aims of, of uh, propaganda is to maintain morale. It's to convince the population to hold out. And as losses mount, as tensions grow, that becomes uh, more difficult. W one interesting example, this is kind of let's say, the danger within your own armed forces, right, of morale going down. Although, of course, this, this was a, an issue in the civilian population as well. Both the French and the Germans um, created special programs to increase morale of their troops in 1917. So the Germans created a, a patriotic instruction program for the army 
and the French uh, targeted, especially with film, in their film propaganda section, they would show well-fed French troops, organized French troops, well-equipped French troops, I mean, above average, right? So not just you film whatever French troops walking by, um, you kind of pump up the equipment they have, uh, you show them eating lots of good food and so on. And these were some of the some of the ways that this uh, feared slip in morale could be could be potentially uh, minimized. But yes, um, as far as the strikes and and labor is concerned, you can. There are basically two ways of of approaching that. You can say, well, you can try the nice way, where you encourage people. You know, you must work and hold out victories around the corner. This is the last effort. Or you can uh, shame people. And shame is a really big emotion that gets played on in uh, propaganda, right? What are you doing? Are you letting down those who are risking their lives? The striker is helping the German, right? Helping the evil Kaiser. And if the Kaiser is so evil... And you want to go on strike, and it means you're helping him. So why would you want to do that or be associated with someone uh, someone like that? That's quite interesting. Um, sp speaking of, um, let's say, um, wait, I need to carefully phrase this question. So, so n now that we spoke about, uh, well, certain... Uh, groups within these Western societies and also um, in Russia and everything. One last thing that uh, just popped to my mind is that um, I also, know, I mean, I mean, the British Empire, the French, um, they had, you know, global spanning colonial empires, and on, they also wanted to uh, appeal to their colonial subjects because a lot of them were fighting in the war and they were vital for the war economy as well. So what, what do we know about um, the, well, the depiction of um, these colonials in, in these cartoons? And also what do we know about cartoons that were maybe published in colonial papers or um, overseas, basically? Well, yeah, Britain and France depended on their colonial empires to wage war and in an empire like the British or the French uh, or, or the Russian to a lesser ex extent perhaps there's always this tension between having those colonies and feeling a sense of imperial pride or nationalism about being an imperial power wanting those colonies and then fearing the people in those colonies so you have a shift in the imagery during the war that in a way portrayed the colonial peoples, colonized peoples, in a more positive light because the empire needs them to fight the war. And it's a show of strength. It's a show of solidarity that we can draw on these people who are willing to come and help, which wasn't always necessarily the case. Um, to, to fight this titanic uh, struggle. So I was reading recently a bit more about the French colonial empire, especially in West Africa, where it was most significant, that the images of West Africans 
took on a more positive note in French propaganda and media during the war years. They even had uh, a Journée des Troupes Coloniales, the Day of Colonial Troops, where they were celebrated and so on. Um, because, of course, there, there is a fear amongst white Europeans of black African yeah, at the time with, because of this colonial uh, relationship. And, uh, but the, the, the objective of creating imperial solidarity and winning the war, uh, to some extent, overcame that fear in terms of the propaganda messaging. Um, the African troops of both the British and the French were of great interest to the Germans as well, and they attempted to use this quite substantially in their propaganda, essentially to say that the French and British were unethical or amoral by using these um, inferior races as the uh, German propaganda would have put it at the time in a European war against white troops and that of course, primitive and barbaric and were ready to uh, commit atrocities of the kind that European troops in theory didn't commit, even though, of course, in practice, they, um, they often did. That's quite interesting because, on the other hand, the Germans also tried to appeal to their prisoners of war from, that were from, from, the, uh, from these colonies. I mean, the first mosque in Germany was built south of Berlin during World War I in a prisoner of war camp. Uh, because they wanted to potentially actually recruit some of these troops into into the armed forces and everything. So it's kind of a um, twisted message that I'm, <laughs> I'm reading here. In a sense, but I think the the Germans, I mean, they, you know, they're allied with the Ottoman Empire. They essentially have a lot of influence over the Ottoman Empire. They called, they had the, uh, they had the Ottomans call for a jihad, right, against the, the French and British, which failed. But this is slightly out of my area of expertise, but, but from what I've seen, I would suspect that the Germans differentiated quite significantly between uh, sub-Saharan black African colonial troops and Muslim South Asian troops, Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, and so on, even though it was just one colony at the time. And that there was a special fear reserved for the uh, the African troops. Well, yeah, um, I can, you know, that makes sense, of course. Um, well, Jesse, uh, this was quite interesting. I've, uh, I found it, I found it interesting to basically take one subject, visual medium like cartoons and use it as a lens to view basically the entire war. And I think with all the questions that I just had, I realized that you can literally look at every development and every social aspect of the war and kind of view it through that lens of cartoons and that uh, actually was quite fascinating and I hope our listeners found it quite interesting as well. Do you want to say anything before we leave off? I just want to say thanks for having me and I hope that some of your listeners um, can find an interest in the visual media aspect of the war. The war is such a complex and huge event, uh, it transcends the fighting in the trenches. And if we want to understand it, I think it's, it's good for us to look at all, all aspects. Very well said. Uh, thanks a lot, Jesse, again. And I wish you all the best for your 
research and greetings to Vienna from Berlin. Thank you. Dankeschön.